Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, for you alone are our strength and our redeemer. And as we've sang, come, come Holy Spirit, teach our souls to love your truth. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most influential American missionaries of the 20th century never actually made it uh, to the mission field. This young man was named William Borden. Uh, he lived from 1887 to 1913, and he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. So if you go to Kroger or you go to Publix and go to the milk section, you'll see Borden milk. It has Elsie the cow on it. Maybe you've seen Elsie. Um, this young man was a millionaire by 21. And that's like a, you know, early 20th century millionaire. So do the math on how much that would be today. Um, he actually renounced his fortune. Gave almost all of his money away. And his heart's desire was to go as a missionary. Um, there was a group of Muslims in China. And he wanted to go there and to share the gospel with them. And so his first step was to go to language school. So he moved to Egypt, which was a British colony at the time. And he went there to study and learn Arabic so that he could go and then um, interact with uh, this group in China. Unfortunately, in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. He died at the age of 25. And he's buried in the American, there's an American section, a graveyard uh, in Cairo, Egypt. And if you go and visit it today, and a lot of people do, they actually have uh, ropes around his tombstone uh, to kind of keep it safe, to keep it preserved. Uh, if you go and read his tombstone, William Borden, um, the tombstone describes his love for Jesus. It describes his commitment uh, to the Chinese people his sacrifices for the kingdom of God, and it ends with this inscription. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. We're actually starting a journey this morning. We're going to spend four weeks uh, following the lectionary readings through uh, the book of Philippians. We're actually going to expand those and, and read each chapter, the whole chapter, um, each Sunday that we gather. But as we look at this, uh, it's a little book in the New Testament, but it's a fantastic letter. And as we read in Philippians, we're going to read about a life. We're going to read about a perspective on life that doesn't make any sense apart from faith in Christ. And my hope is that as we go through these over the next four weeks, that we would become more captivated by the gospel. Uh, we would delight in it. We would savor the good news. And we would actually see again uh, the beauty and the humility of our Savior and how he calls us uh, to follow him today. Um, what would it be like to be a people, uh, individually and as a church, that people would look at and say, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I pray that we would become icons of the gospel that would bear witness to the reality of the risen Lord Jesus, what God has done for us and for our salvation. 
So my task this morning is just to introduce uh, this four-week series for us, um, introduce Philippians to you, and I want to spend some time talking about where Paul is, the Apostle Paul, uh, when he writes this letter. Because Paul is writing Philippians from a Roman cell, uh, likely in Ephesus. Um, and, and I don't know if you have visited a Roman prison before, but, but this is not a minimum security, like white toga criminal kind of facility. Um, Roman prisons are terrible. Um, they, they were uh, cold stone. They were bereft of any comfort. They were bereft of, there's no goal to care for the prisoner. They're merely to be there to either await trial or to be punished so that they will know exactly what they've done wrong. Uh, before you went into prison, they would actually strip you and they would beat you, they would flog you, and then they would just throw you in. You would be utterly humiliated, in pain, probably still bloody. Um, and usually you didn't just go in by yourself. Um, you would often be chained, either by the wrist or the ankle, uh, to a Roman guard. Um, and that was a really effective way to keep track of prisoners. Rather than, you know, prison bars um, and lots of them, they would just chain you to a guard. And then you can't get away and he's got a sword and, you know, you get the idea. Um, the wounds from your flogging, they weren't treated. Uh, there was no medic on hand to make sure that you were cared for. Uh, there's no recreation director to take you out to the yard for exercise. Uh, in fact, there's not even a cook. If you wanted to eat, you had to hope that someone sent you food. And that's what you would eat. And that actually brings us to this letter. Because in many ways, uh, what Paul is doing, he's writing to this church that's dear to him. Uh, sometimes the Apostle Paul has harsh words for a church and they need to hear it. Uh, here, you can just sense the love, the affection. He's so hopeful, so optimistic for this church. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul is writing them saying, hey, thank you. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Also, probably, thank you that you sent somebody with food. You sent somebody with a coat, a cloak. You've attended to my practical needs here in prison. Thank you. Um, and then I think also that this letter is probably partly a final words just in case uh, for this church he loved. Uh, because the survival rate in Roman prisons was not good. And he knows there's a real potential uh, that he could die. He doesn't think that'll happen. He hopes for something different, but he knows it could. And he wants them to stand firm in the gospel, to live wholehearted lives of devotion to Jesus, to pursue the upward call of God in Christ. And he makes sure right at the beginning, says, I want you to know that what has happened, which to all normal accounts, looks terrible. He's in prison. I want you to know that what has happened is actually part of God's providential plan to advance the gospel. And God is using this, even if we don't know how or why. He wants that kind of trust uh, for this church. And so I think Philippians is a gift because it tells us of a great and living hope. It's rooted in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Um, here, Paul lets us know uh, there's going to be suffering. And actually, he gives us a context for it. He says, the, the suffering you're going to experience, the category for it 
is that your own suffering is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. God's going to use it in ways that we would we'd never ask for, but he's going to use it in your life to conform you to the image of his son. I mean, think about it. In Philippians, think about this man, Paul. This is a prisoner who is truly free. I mean, we, we read the prophet Jonah. Jonah did not have any problems, and he is a grumpy, spoiled brat of a prophet. He's mad that the plant died. I mean, just contrast that to this grateful prisoner who is filled with joy and contentment when he shouldn't be. No, in many ways, Paul has had everything stripped away. His worldly possessions, his dignity, his honor, his status, his acclaim, he is completely dependent on outside help just for his day-to-day rations, just to feed himself. And he can look around at everything he's lost and says, you know what? Compared to Jesus, compared to Christ, these are all rubbish. He actually uses a word. He says, compared to Jesus, everything I've lost as I sit here in a prison cell facing maybe death, it's all, the Greek word is skubala. And I'm not going to translate that because we're in church. But I'll give you a sense of it. There's an old uh, SNL, Saturday Night Live skit. Um, and you may remember it or you'll probably look it up later today. It's an old SNL skit. It has Mike Myers. And uh, Mike Myers, he, he's a Scottish man. He's a Scotsman. And he owns this Scottish shop. And all they do is sell paraphernalia and memorabilia about Scotland. And everyone who comes into his shop, there's one thing he tells them all the time. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. (laughs) That's close to scubala. (laughs) He wants them to know if it's not Christ, it's crap. That's his outlook on life with everything stripped away as he sits in this prison cell. They have taken everything from him. And he says, I have a hope that cannot be taken away. He is grasped and gripped onto something even stronger than the things of this world. If you strip him, beat him, throw him in a Roman dungeon, he's rejoicing and probably trying to share the gospel with the soldier chained to him so that he too would know the good news of what God has done in Christ. He would know forgiveness of sins. He would be able to have this kind of outlook uh, that Paul has. And so we're going to actually jump into kind of the end of this chapter, uh, Philippians 1, uh, because it's an interesting passage um, where we have Paul, uh, really it's a soliloquy. Like Hamlet, you know, to be or not to be, we kind of see that sense of what Paul is doing He's musing. He's thinking through his current situation and what might happen. And then we're going to come to verse 27, where I think he gains clarity to give a charge to this church and really a charge uh, to us and to our church. And so in this part of Philippians 1, Paul is considering the possibility, yeah, this might go bad. Like, I, I might not be here at the end of this prison sentence, and yet I will rejoice. Um, Look at what he says here 
verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's, he's kind of thinking this through. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. He cares about them, and so he's hoping that he will be delivered. But he's asking big questions. To be or not to be. He's thinking about um, life and death. He's thinking about eternal things. And you would think about those things too if you were sitting in a Roman prison. (laughs) Um, All of his pretensions and illusions have been stripped away. All the ways that we keep thoughts like this at bay. Uh, They come crowding into the prison cell uh, with Paul. And he goes, hey, if I die, I go to be with the Lord. That's interesting. I would say that one of the most important questions we can ask is what happens when we die? And that can be overdone. And there's times, especially in the church, it's been overdone and you know, used in some kind of tacky ways. Um, I remember being on a mountain in Colorado. We were rappelling with a bunch of high schoolers uh, with a group called Noah's Ark. And uh, we were rappelling and we're up on this cliff. And I was just in a, sometimes my humor gets the best of me. And so I was like, do you know if you were to die tonight (laughs) or today, let's say in a rappelling accident, (laughs) where you would spend eternity? And the Lord in his sense of humor, you know what happened? All the kids rappelled down safely. And then I got off the side of the cliff to go down and they had not secured a knot. And so I free fell about 30 feet down the face of a cliff and it caught and I learned my lesson. And they pulled me back up with the safety harness. And then I had to actually like, they kind of secured it. And I went down for real. Cause I was like, I've got to show these kids. Like, this is safe. You can do this. I learned my lesson. But we think about this. What happens when we die? Um, and we, we usually talk about this with euphemisms, right? They go to a better place or, or this or that. Um, it's not the place we go to that's really important. It's who we go to. And that's what Paul's really confident of. That when he goes, he goes to be with Jesus. He goes to be with the Lord. We actually, in our Eucharistic, uh, when we come to the table, we'll pray uh, in in faith and in hope. Lord, we're going to see you face to face. Paul is rooted in that great hope. And so he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He views that as a win-win. Either way. If I stay alive, I keep doing ministry. If I die, I go to be with the Savior. Either way, it's a win-win for the Apostle Paul. Um, and again, he's not, he, he's not you know, super depressed. He's not hoping to die. Um, he realizes the great hope that, that he will have when he dies. But I think it just teaches us a moment of how we should think about this. Because one, we tend to not think about this. Or when it comes up, we just talk about it terribly. Um, Here's what I see here. This is Bishop N.T. Wright focusing on this passage. says, the central thing about dying, as far as Paul's concerned, is that it will mean going to be with Jesus, his Lord, his master, his king. Immediately after death, he implies, the Christian goes to be with the Lord. The language of being with the Lord is probably the best, safest, most accurate Christian way of talking about life after death. 
It also means that death doesn't have the last word. This great enemy, this terrible thing. Um, there's a, an English Puritan preacher named Thomas Brooks. Uh, he was ministering in the 1600s, and we have one of his funeral sermons. Apparently it was so good that they wrote it down, and we have it today. Um, and he's looking at this idea of how do we think about death? He says, for the believer, death not only ceases to be our conqueror, death actually becomes God's meek helper. Here's what he writes. Death is another Moses. It delivers believers out of bondage from making bricks in Egypt. We rest from our labors because we go to be with the Savior. He writes, every prayer then, uh, when we die, all those questions you have, they're going to be answered. It says, all the hungering and thirsting shall be filled and satisfied. Every sigh, groan, and tear that has fallen from the saints' eyes shall then be recompensed. It says, no, it's not death, but life. And we are finally and fully joined to Jesus. The scriptures tells us that death is one of the things that has been defeated by the cross of Christ. It's one of the things that has been defeated by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, such that this great enemy is rendered an instrument and even servant of the Lord because it ushers us into his presence where we see him face to face. Um, the first time I remember uh, consciously being interested in anyone who was an Anglican was in college when I was introduced to John Donne. John Donne was an Anglican uh, poet and minister. He was at St. Paul's uh, in London. He was actually a court preacher. Uh, did you know that if you were a king, you could just summon the preacher and church would come to you? That's kind of cool. Um, that's what he did. And he wrote a sonnet and he started with, death be not proud. He puts death in his place, and he, he ends it with, death thou shalt die, ultimately. Paul facing death has that kind of clarity, that kind of perspective. And I think from that clarity comes this, more or less a mission statement, this way to live. After he's reflected on everything, verse 27 says, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's like, at the end of the day, when everything's stripped away and we have our hope in Jesus, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in the spirit, striving side by side for the gospel. He knows that this church is going to face challenges. He already, just early on, you hear about, hey, there's some other people out there, they're, they're preaching Christ, and they're rivals, they're sketchy. Um, towards the end, he talks about enemies that they will encounter. In verse 3, he calls them dogs. He, he's like, these are, these are bad dudes. He's like, y'all are going to have trouble. You've got to navigate tricky waters within your city, within the church. He knows that Philippi uh, is a Roman colony. And if you worship the Lord Jesus, who was nailed to a Roman cross, eventually there's going to be a conflict between you and Rome, between you and the ways of the world. In fact, Philippi, what's interesting, um, the way I conceptualize Philippi, it's, it's, in, it's in kind of Greece, and it's, it's adjacent to some major battles 
uh, major battles. Actually, it was, the, the battles were so bad, so many people were killed, that they asked the soldiers who fought in those battles, hey, please stay here and settle this town because we wiped it out. This is like a first century Gettysburg. It's, it's that kind of famous carnage, unfortunately. And the city is largely resettled with these Roman veterans who would have been very proud of their status and their connection to Rome. In fact, their connection to Rome was more important because they weren't there. They were in Greece. It had to matter a little more. It was distinctive. Um, we, we had a, a sweet young man at our first service. He had an Alabama shirt on. <laughs> now, let me tell you, if you're in Tuscaloosa, that's not a big deal. You just, we all wear Alabama shirts. That's who we are. Why would you wear an Alabama shirt in Athens? Because you're staying connected to Tuscaloosa. You're showing, I may be in the midst of this, but that's where my loyalty lies. These Roman veterans were the same way in the middle of Greece. They were all the more proud of their heritage and their service because they weren't in the middle of the city. They were out on the far outskirts of the empire, so it was more important. And Paul goes, man, that's going to bring you trouble. Because you're going to try to reconcile what does it mean to be a citizen of Rome, a citizen of this world, something that you have taken pride in and it's given you identity and purpose and meaning, and it's going to run right up against the values and ethics and identity of the kingdom. And so in Philippians 3, he talks about your citizenship. And again, they're so proud of their citizenship as Roman. Your citizenship's in heaven. And you, we await a savior and redeemer from there. He knows they're going to run into trouble. He knows they're going to be persecuted. He knows the normal pain and suffering and tribulation of life will come. It says, when it, when it does, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He wants them to continue to proclaim the good news of what God has done in Jesus um, with their lives and with their lips. To continue becoming and telling the story even when it gets hard, even when you're in a prison, even when you're being persecuted, even when you are ostracized and you've lost all honor and all standing. He says, stand firm in the gospel and know that it's worth it. Again, part of this is rooted in this idea that Paul is He's reasoned it out and says, you know what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. And so if all this conflict, if the worst thing comes and they kill you, you got to be with Jesus. And then what have you lost? If it's not Christ, it's crap. No. He's captivated by the good news of the gospel. The free grace that we receive in the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, we receive and the gospel that meets us where we are but doesn't leave us there. So he wants us to live gospel lives. Here's the thing. When I think about that phrase, um, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, um, it's interesting to think about how do we hear that in church? How do we connect with that? Because I think for some of us when we hear um, to die is gain, we go, man, I probably need to think that through. What's going to happen when I die? Is it going to be gain? 
Have I heard this proclamation of the good news of the gospel and turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? Some of us, that's what we probably need to do business with, to think through, to pray through, to talk through. What does it mean that to die is gain? I think for others of us, we have uh, maybe come to faith early in life. Uh, Maybe church was kind of just something we did. And we're like, yeah, we're pretty confident. Yeah, I guess it'll be fine when I die. We'll go to be with Jesus or something. But we don't always think about how does it impact our lives? Like somehow, some, we, we think faith is this future thing. Salvation is this future thing. The gospel is only good for when we die. And to that, Paul would say, no, 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 to live is Christ. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Begin working this out even here and now. Don't wait until you're face to face with Jesus to spend time with him and learn from him. And do the work that he has given you to do. One commentator on Philippians says, life, both physical and spiritual, is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Jesus. And the sense that everything Paul does, everything Paul trusts and loves and hopes and obeys and preaches and follows is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives him inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to his existence. You could write on Paul's tombstone, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You know, I was reflecting uh, this week uh, that this summer has felt like a transitional season for our church. Um, some of you know we, we've encountered some adversity. We've had some real struggle, uh, both in the spring and through the summer. Uh, we haven't been, you know, put in jail or anything. We've not been in a prison. Um, but we've had some rocky road. And so we've grieved. And I would say by God's grace, we've grown. We've matured. There's been some pruning. And so I've spent a lot of time recently just thinking and praying, Lord, what are you up to in this next season? Uh, What are you calling us into? What are you preparing us for? Uh, And that phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I've just been kind of playing with it. Where folks will say, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a church. What would that look like? What would that be like? To be a people who had so... Uh, been rooted in the gospel, rooted in Jesus, that they, they would look at us, they would look at our church, that this doesn't make sense apart from Christ and faith in Christ. Um, I mean, there's a lot of good churches out there. Now, Paul's pretty certain here, like, hey, don't talk bad about other churches and other ministries. We're all working together for the kingdom. Um, before we were here, I worked for a great church out in Texas. Um, And we were established, and we were big, and we were successful, and we were pretty proud of ourselves. (laughs) Um, And we lived just like everybody else. And so part of our call to come here to try to get this started, man, what would it be like to start something where we don't play church anymore, but we seek an encounter with the risen Jesus? What would it be like? We're not playing church anymore, but we're seeking to live lives of wholehearted devotion to Christ. Seeking to live lives where the manner of our life is worthy of the gospel. 
where we actually walk around like big question marks where people go, what in the world are they doing? And they ask questions and we can tell them about the good news of God in Christ Jesus, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What would it look like to have a vibrant, disciple-making liturgical church that is all about the gospel? And again, not a church that says, hey, come here because we're the best. And there's, there's a lot of good in our church. I, I, I love our church. I'm proud of our church and the right sense of that. But not come here, we're the best, or we have the best stuff, or we're doing it the best way. No, come here because we're really good sinners. <laughs> we're pretty messed up. But we have found a great Savior, and we would love to introduce you to him. We're trying to live our lives in ways that are worthy of him. And we're actually at peace <laughs> that whatever we do, as we do the work God has given us to do, at the end of the day, we're going to come face to face with Jesus who loves us and gave himself for you and for me. That's the kind of wholehearted faith we see in the Apostle Paul writing this letter from prison to this church, and he calls them into it. So I'm excited about the next few weeks for us as we dig into Philippians together. I would say in the week to come, a lot of our community groups will be kind of wrestling with this, this chapter, kind of think about it, pray about it, um, spend some time kind of inwardly, Lord, what would it be like for me, for my life, for, for the circumstances I'm in? What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? Where do I need to grow? What things do I need to change? What would it look like for our church to do this as well? And then don't go try to do it on your own. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and do his work that he longs to do, to cleanse and refine and renew and even shine forth um, in our individual lives and in our common lives together. To give us clarity to say to live is Christ and to die is gain, and to ask the Lord for help. Minute by minute, day by day, month by month, year by year, until we are called home to be with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.